Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today, we continue with part two of a two-part series. In January 2020, the David and Laura Lovell Foundation convened a screening of Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops, a documentary about police responses to mental health calls. Director Jennifer McShane follows police officers Ernie Stevens and Joe Smarrow during their daily encounters with people in crisis as members of the San Antonio Police Department's 10-person mental health unit. Ernie and Joe is currently streaming on HBO. The event took place at the Loft Cinema and featured a panel discussion including producer and director Jennifer McShane and mental health police officer Joe Smarrow. Local panelists include moderator Christina Rossetti, Dr. Richard Rhodes, chief psychiatrist of the Banner UMC Crisis Response Center, Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona, or NAMI, Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator, and Jason Winsky, Supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. The Tucson-based David and Laurel Lovell Foundation helped underwrite the production of the documentary and sponsor the local screening. Here is Christina Rossetti. There are several questions that came up about how the program in San Antonio is different from what happens in Phoenix, from what happens in Tucson. So I don't know if the three of you can kind of speak to that. And I think the other thing that people are wondering is like how many CIT trained officers are there? Does everyone get a little bit of training? And then how, did, how do you differentiate between who gets goes out on those mental health calls? San Antonio mental health peace officer Joe Smarrow. Just real quick. So CIT was born in 88 from an incident that happened in 87 out of Memphis. So as you heard, uh, Sabrina mentioned, you know, the, the Memphis model and it's voluntary based. And so to be honest, there's, you know, we go to CIT International Conference. I, I, I love all things CIT, but there, I think the, the hang up is in just the nomenclature of CIT. For me, it's like, who cares what we call it, right? I, 40 hours of mental health training, call it what you want, is vital for every police officer to have in this country. Uh, the last statistic I saw, which granted was a couple years ago, and it, it was saying that still like more than 70% of the police agencies in this country don't have any mental health training. But again, just like Jen mentioned, we, we tend to focus on the larger cities, right? Phoenix, Tucson, San Antonio, LA, New York, all these big cities have it. And so we just assume that everybody has it. But if you go to any rural area, there's a really good chance that they don't have any mental health training. And so the chief Originally, the goal was, hey, we're going to train 10% of our patrol division. That way, there's someone on every shift at every substation, and anytime there's a, a mental health call, we train the community, ask for a CIT-trained officer. You guys have heard this. The problem was that there was more calls coming in for mental health than the CIT-trained officers could handle. And so he was like, well, you know what, let's just do 100%. As the trainers, we were like, whoa, big guy. Um, that's a lot of work. And truly, we did. We were, we were doing about 18 to 20 40-hour CIT schools a year for three years to get our entire department up to speed. And it was difficult. But here's what I would say. 
what I've learned from going through that, that method is as long as we keep it strictly voluntary, and I hear there's waiting lists, and I think that's beautiful. I'm glad there's waiting lists. But in San Antonio, here's what I know. If we kept it voluntary, people, yes, we would get some people to show up, but we wouldn't have got everyone to show up. And what we've learned is through mandating this training, because anytime you mandate anything, people get their feelings hurt, especially cops, right? And so when the chief said everyone's going to do it, we had people showing up on Monday just mad, uh, just mad about it, you know, saying, like, I don't believe in this. Like, this is ridiculous. And what are you going to teach me? I've been doing this 25, 30 years and just angry, except for on Friday. They were suddenly our biggest advocates. And what we also learned was that they would have never volunteered for this training and it most directly affected them because they had someone in their family with mental illness. They had been frustrated by the system. They didn't understand the resources that are available locally. And because we're afraid and it's easy to wear a mask, they didn't want anyone to find out about it because a good CIT program is going to kind of hit you in your feels. And when we do role plays that we force them to do these scenarios and pass it. It's not just go through the motions. You have to actually perform and you have to do it in front of your peers. And when we encourage them and make them understand that they're good at it, there's something to be said there. And so if you keep it strictly voluntary, you're going to miss a huge chunk of officers that are actually very good at this, that need the training, but will never do it because historically in the culture of policing, CIT is not sexy. You know, I didn't join this profession to go and talk to people and do all this stuff. I did, but a lot of cops don't, right? And so culturally, there's an issue there because it goes against what historically we promote as training. And real quick, and with this, just watch any police recruiting video to come join our police department. They're going to look at hostile negotiators, helicopter squad, K-9, SWAT. They promote all of the 1%. And then you show up and realize, like, wait a minute, like, this isn't, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm just showing up and dealing with these people's problems all day. If, again, put me in charge. Recruiting videos are going to be cops <laughs> hugging people, shaking hands, going to meetings. That's the reality of police work. Jason Winsky, supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. Well, yeah, and I, I certainly agree. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is the inconsistencies even locally here. When you go from the city to the county or you go to Marana, Oro Valley, everyone's doing this a little bit different. The other, the other thing that, um, that, we, that I've been really had the privilege to see over the last um, several years is we're very lucky Tucson and Phoenix have very similar crisis drop-off centers that are 24-7. The vast majority of the country doesn't have access to that. So what you're getting nationwide are police chiefs and sheriffs that are saying, I get to I get jail diversion, but divert to what? Where am I going? Where am I taking this person? Am I in an ER somewhere? Here in Arizona, it's still not uncommon for a person to have to take a two or three hour police car ride to get to the, the closest available facility, which is often the CRC, especially here um, in Southern Arizona. So, but very luckily, um, one of the things that the CRC is, is specializing in, and let Dr. Rose talk about this too, is, I mean, there are dozens of communities all over the country that are coming together now to stand up crisis centers. And that is such a, a critical component for law enforcement. Um, you know, what I what I always say is, you know, if the cop here takes someone to the, to the crisis response center, I don't really care what their motivation was, right? If it was faster than the jail and that was their motivation, well, fine, I'll take that. You know, if they really believe in it, even better, right? That, you know, as treatment as an alternative to jail. But I, I think that's a huge uh, focus that we have to have nationwide now is standing up more and more of these facilities that are easy for police officers 
to use and geographically close to where they are. Jason, can you also speak to the question about how many CIT trained or percentage of? 65% of our patrol division um, is trained. So I don't math because I'm a cop, <laughs> um, but we have like we have 900 police officers. So it's 65% of that number. So we're pretty we're pretty well staffed when it comes to CIT training. Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator. So, um, great state of Maricopa, right? We've got all the resources. We have all the wonderful bells and whistles and great places to take people to. And then you start going out into the rural Arizona and, you know, Snowflake and Globe, and they might have like one community bridges that's four hours away, right? It's difficult if you have a small department to, um, to train. Like, in-kind services become very expensive. Um, and so, you know, Northern Arizona kind of struggles to do like a whole 40 hours all together. Um, and then, okay, great. So you finally suffer and you get this this officer through this 40 hours of training and you've taught them to be very, very nice to people when they take them to jail because there's nowhere else to go. So step one of any really good CIT program is like we need some resources we need some partners we need somebody in the community to, to step up and there have been some cities who have really leveraged emergency departments because most emergency departments don't want to provide mental health treatment um, and they would like an uh, emergency psychiatric center to do that and they have a little bit of money and they have a little bit of political clout um, so but, but that's hard. I mean, how are you supposed to get um, a, a police department of 60 people to, to figure, to navigate that and figure all that out? And so, I mean, we have conferences and we have conventions and we, we work to try to do it, but it's a, it's a long slog and it's an uphill road and, and we're working towards it. And I think we're finally getting to a point where maybe there's a little bit of reduction in stigma right now. Maybe people are actually talking about this. And um, I know Yavapai County, which is just kind of like a little bit north of Phoenix, um, has done an amazing job at standing up a crisis system and starting to utilize it and, and doing the training. In the Phoenix area, a lot of the smaller departments around us are 55, 65% training. Uh, we have a CIT class every month somewhere in Maricopa County. We keep it small because, again, a lot of feelings, um, and you can't have feelings in a room full of 100 people. Um, but Every month, 30 to 25 to 30 officers are, are getting certif certified in the county, um, and, and we're starting to hit good saturation levels, and they are all voluntary. I mean, we argue semantics about whatever you call it. It doesn't matter. Uh, whatever makes officers nicer when they go to the house, <laughs> yay. Ernie and Joe director Jennifer McShane. And not just nicer, but aware of their own mental health challenges. I think that is a huge piece of this conversation that hasn't been happening. You know, they're going into a into a crisis situation sometimes with their own crisis, and I think uh, starting to kind of inform. We've had amazing feedback from police departments who've seen this film, including NYPD. Um, so I think we've got a lot of room to go, but I think the time might be right for kind of positive moving of the needle. We don't want to uh, get through this Q and A without uh, talking with a mental a local mental health advocate, and because we have questions. People want to know where do they go if um, they're not in a acute crisis or they're not uh, their family members not in a acute crisis. But what, what's that first step for them to seek help? Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona. Well, if um, if you 
think your loved one needs some, uh, an evaluation, the crisis network, and they do evaluations whether or not a person needs mental health treatment. And the person has to agree to it unless it is a crisis, and then you can force it. You can call um, Arizona Complete Health. Um, if they're starting to appear to be in a crisis, you can talk them into going to the CRC, and they can do an evaluation there. Um, you can call NAMI and say, what should I do? And maybe we have three advocates, and uh, we offer classes and support groups for family members so they know how to deal with what's going on in their family. There, there are no charges for these classes. The, the um, family-to-family class was a 12-week class, and I think it's going to turn into a nine-week class very shortly. And then we have family support groups, and we have them in Spanish and English. We also have uh, support groups for people living with mental illness. And we have a peer-to-peer program, which is an education program based on recovery for people living with mental illness taught by mentors who also have a mental illness who have tr- been trained on how to teach these points to, the, to people that need them. Okay. Thanks, Judy. Dr. Rhodes, you want to speak to local resources? So I want to say a few things. The crisis center is for anyone to come. It doesn't matter how small the crisis is or how severe it is. We'll take any range. You can walk in. If you need connection to resources, we're happy to see um, see you or you know the, your loved one. Also, Arizona Complete Health runs a crisis line, uh, just a phone line. So you could call if you want um, to, to understand more about what resources might be available um, if you don't need to come in physically to the crisis center. The resources available to you are somewhat related to the payer. Um, so if you have insurance, you know, you'd go through your insurance company to find out who's available through, uh, who's networked with your insurance. But if you just um, need to get started and don't know where to go, the Crisis Response Center is happy to, to help you there. You are listening to part two of a panel discussion following the Tucson screening of Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops, a documentary about police responses to mental health calls from 30 Minutes 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So there were a couple of questions uh, that folks had, and you know, I think that's what I was so taken by the film was um, y- yours and Ernie's uh, willingness to be so transparent. How how hard is it for police officers to be that transparent in in their departments to say, you know, I, I'm a survivor or I'm dealing with, with a mental health issue and, and continue to, to do what they do? And, and how, can this, how can we support you in that? It's tough because, like we mentioned in there, you know, law enforcement has its own subculture. And so it really has to be worked from the internal. Um, I can tell you that it's it's not going well because our suicide numbers were the highest they ever were last year. Um, so stigma is a real thing universally. The, again, this is a cultural issue because of the things that we promote right away, my belief is starting at the training academies. And again, one of the issues I have is that nothing is standardized, right? You know, and, and 
for people who think that law enforcement in this country is a paramilitary organization, I wholeheartedly disagree as someone who has done both um, because it, like in the Marine Corps, we have two boot camps. It's West Coast, East Coast. But either way, you are in the same uniform and you're doing essentially the same job in law enforcement in this country. Everything is different. The laws are different. The uniforms are different. Your training standards are different. Your uh, requirements for training are, are so different. And so nothing is the same. To that end, though, we have this like thin blue line thing that we have, which is this for me, it's a problem because it's this I this belief that I have to deal with all these things on my own because the expectation is that I am tough because this is a you know, it's a this is a tough profession and I'm very fortunate now my function. So like I'm glad you're all sitting down. So Ernie and I are no longer partners. It's okay. Um, No, but uh, but the mission has shifted a little bit. Right. And so he's he's working on a program right now, still in mental health. All of my work now is internal. So all I do now is officer wellness and I only deal with our own SAPD officers, hospitalizing our officers, getting our officers into treatment. Um, every year we have to go through a week long of in-service training. Uh, and so I have every Tuesday this year, I'm going to be out at the academy training the entire department on wellness, self-care, resiliency, um, and in really advocating for treatment, for therapy. And for me, this is why it was so important for me to be transparent is because I'm not going to be a hypocrite. If I'm going to, if I'm going to promote something, it's only going to be because I've done it. Right. And so, um, I, I, I tell them I go to therapy still twice a month now and, um, and I have a diagnosis. I, I go to treatment for it. Like, but it's okay. Right. I'm still here. I'm still employed. I I didn't get in trouble. I didn't. Now, did it make some of the upper brass nervous? Yes. When they saw some of the video and they they saw something on there where I mentioned that I've struggled with suicidal thoughts months later when it came out in a news piece, there was a lieutenant who was like, we've got to get him off the streets. And I was like, good Lord, man. Like like. But there's there's fear. Right. Because that's essentially what it boils down to is fear, liability. What if what if what if. And again, to that end is policy wise if an officer comes forward and says i'm struggling what do we then do do we take their gun do we put them in a desk do we support them do we hide them do we and nobody really knows there are some people who do it well Uh, i'll tell you our our department is relatively progressive and supportive of officers i have probably six right now that are in treatment two of them are in a 42-day inpatient for um, alcohol addiction but they absolutely get supported and get their job back when they're ready But there's also some agencies that when they find out you have any level of crisis at that end, they're finding ways to get you out and to retire you without a pension. And so, yeah, there's a lot of fear when it comes to this because nothing is the same anywhere. Jason Winsky, supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I I agree with everything you said. And, you know, I think what it really takes, and and, and you said this, was a genuine buy-in from the leadership so that the troops don't have to be afraid to come forward. Um, One of the things we're doing at the Tucson Police Department is, like, you know, they want to do, they want to implement, like, a yearly physical. So you've got the the, the 25-year officer that says, oh, they're going to find something in there, and they're going to use that to fire me. And quite frankly, 10 years ago, we probably would do that. I mean, that's accurate. I mean, that... That for decades was how police departments and sheriff's departments responded to those. If you raised your hand and stepped forward, that's a 
really good way to be to become an outcast or possibly um, even lose your job. And that's where senior leadership really has to come in, and we're lucky in Tucson that we have that, to step forward and say, this is not a disciplinary tool. This is something that we're trying to use to help you. You know, police officers are not just more, you know, at risk for mental health issues, but it's the, it's the whole health, right? It's physical health and everything else as well, right? It's, it's all of those things. And so, um, you know, as new as we are to mental health for police officers dealing with the community, interacting with the community, we're even newer to the officer wellness um, side of that, and we have a long way to go in that, in that arena. Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator. They're both on point and like any um, like any illness like any addiction the the it has to come from inside like we have to do this internally um, but there are some ways that the community can support us talking about it and having it in the news has been amazing um, and then there's uh, there's been a few um, organizations like Cigna, um, Aurora Behavioral Health up in, in Phoenix that have had officer wellness days. Completely not affiliated with the department. They're available. They have horse therapy. They have all kinds of, of great stuff. You bring your family. Um, and for some, that's that's how it gets started. Now, it's not as good as having the internal supports. And, um, you know, when I look back over in my career, the person the most in the best position to help me through whatever I was going through would be my immediate supervisor. Um, and so, again, it's, it's very much internal and that has its own challenges. But if you wanted to help and, and support, um, having those officer wellness days gets the conversation started and, and it's helpful. Moderator Christina Rossetti. We're kind of nearing the end of our time. And I think what I'd like to do is... Um, is ask each of the panel members to just maybe in a couple of sentences um, to tell us what encourages them as they continue in the work that they do in this in this arena. Jason Winsky, supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. Well, what encourages me this right here today, um, seeing all of you here um, kind of in the middle of the day, maybe some of you took off work, um, probably like most of the team members on the mental health support team at the police department, probably most of you have a personal connection to this um, issue. That's, I think, what encourages me the most is seeing the team members that we have, seeing the effort and the drive that they put in and, and knowing that most of them also have a personal connection to this issue. And that's kind of one of the things that keeps me going. Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator. What keeps me going with all of this is I know I'm not alone. I mean, my, my current partner is the Crisis and Veteran Services Director for Mercy Care, not even a cop. Um, and, and she's up late with me at, at night trying to figure out how we're going to solve the next problem. And when I see movies like this, um, the first time I watched it, it, it freaked me out because it was so real. It was, <laughs> it's like, real, right? I felt like I was watching, you know, my, my life, my squad's life. Like, this is what we go through every day. And I, I'd never seen anybody put it on a screen before because watching cops, that's not it. <laughs> so know, knowing that I don't have to do this alone, that, that all of you, that all of these people are working towards the same thing is, is helpful. Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona. I've been involved with the CIT in Pima County before it started. I was on the, the uh, consensus building panel and there were over 100 people. And we, you know, there were people that were family members, there were people living <coughs> with mental illness, there was law enforcement, there were doctors, there were attorneys, there were judges. 
you name it, they were there. And halfway through that whole year that we were supposed to meet once a month, we had already started our CIT program. It was so exciting. I mean, it just took off really. And it meant a lot to me because I know of, well, one of the gentlemen that was very involved in trying to get this started lost his son to, to um, what we don't want to say. I don't want to see that for my son, and I don't want to see it for anybody else's family member or loved one. So it, it just gives me lots of hope to know that people can care no matter what their job is. And also, just one little thing is family members also suffer when their loved ones suffer. So depression is normal. I mean, it's part of life. And anxiety. And, and they might also have a, have a diagnosis. You never know. Dr. Richard Rhodes, Chief Psychiatrist of the Banner UMC Crisis Response Center. Uh, what gives me hope is seeing officers, I, mean, I hate to say this, uh, officers like Joe and um, police that have such heart and are willing to put themselves out there in a crisis. I also wanted to say mental illness is, is so prevalent and common. And crisis, um, it, it's so important to intervene in a crisis because it's temporary. It, it's not true that someone who has a suicidal plan is, is, is just going to find another way next time. Intervention right then could be the very thing that, that turns it around. So um, that's, that's what we do at the Crisis Center. The, those brief interventions, even though they are, are brief, um, make all the difference. And, and it makes all the difference in the field um, when, when officers are out there. So I'm, I'm very encouraged to see it on screen and, and just wanted to say how moving it was for me to see. San Antonio Mental Health Peace Officer Joe Smaro. For me, it's, um, you know, I really do not find anything unique about me. This, this is a very surreal experience. Um, but I'll tell you, it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever been a part of in my life. And to meet the people that I've met, to have the experiences I've had through 2019 of going to these different cities and meeting people doing panels like this. Um, and then, you know, seeing like upper leadership, like an assistant chief from a large city police department here, um, the Lovell foundation, like just the amount of people that are rallying around, like this is a true sense of community. And to know that I'm just like a piece of this really is humbling for me. Um, and, and I know that, you know, every human being, because the answer really is universal for everyone while it's slightly different. But if we have a sense of purpose, it's enough to keep keep us going. And so when I have you guys come out here and support us and have a panel shared, um, you know, and, and just real quick to one of the most significant memories that I have from this process was when we did a panel in DC. And if you look at race relations within law enforcement, and uh, we were going to go to DC, and we we're doing a panel just like this. And I don't know if you guys follow film, but there's a short called St. Louis Superman. And the guy Bruce Franks, he's an African American male from um, Ferguson, Missouri activist. And Jen sent us this short like, hey, you're gonna sit on a panel with this guy, watch this film. And I'm gonna be honest, I, I was like, no, like for what? Like, here we go. I'm a, we got to share a panel with this angry guy who hates the cops. Like, I just don't want to do it. But I watched it and I was like, wow, turns out he doesn't hate the cops. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you are willing to let go of your ignorance. So we get to D.C. and 
the most amazing thing, Bruce had that same exact experience. When his, when his filmmaker gave him Ernie and Joe, he was like, hell no. I'm not watching this film about these two white cops in Texas. So he scrubbed to the middle of it, saw where they mentioned I have five kids. And he's like, what? I have five kids. So he's like, I'm going to give it a watch. So he watched it from beginning to end, loved it. We had the most amazing panel where it was an audience just like this. And to see just the walls come down and to see his mind change about cops, to see our minds change about what an activist means. Uh, it was one of the most beautiful things. And then when we were in Hot Springs, Arkansas, the median age was probably 65. And after the screening to have these grown men that are in their 60s walk up just weeping sobbing saying i'm a suicide survivor thank you for this uh, my mother jumped off a bridge and i wish you could have been there to stop her uh, just powerful powerful testimony one guy said he was an architect and i was like okay he goes no no you don't get it that's a form of art and i was like no i, I do I, I know what that is and he goes no but i've never told anyone other than my mother and my wife that i have a mental illness and I'm coming up and telling you a stranger because you were willing to put it on screen. That's the, like, that there's so much power in story. And every single one of you have a story. And I would just encourage you to share it. Thank you. You've been listening to a panel discussion following the Tucson screening of Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops, a documentary about police responses to mental health calls in San Antonio, Texas. This has been part two of a two-part series. The Tucson-based David and Laurel Lovell Foundation helped underwrite the production of the documentary and sponsor the local screening at the Loft Cinema. Ernie and Joe is currently streaming on HBO. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.